0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Midweek Message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor,
1: Uh, Jim McClarty. Happy New Year. This is our first meeting at GCA of 2024, and we, almost ironically, are going to be in Jeremiah 24 tonight, and we will eventually get there, but a few weeks ago... At the end of Jeremiah 22, we saw the curse that God placed on Jeconiah, who in Jeremiah 22 is referred to by the name Coniah. And when we came across it, I said that that particular curse had implications all the way to the life of Jesus. And then I said, and we'll get back to that. And then, you know, I didn't. And so tonight we're finally going to address that because chapter 24 begins with After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the officials of Judah, with the craftsmen and the smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me, behold, and then we're going to get into the vision that Jeremiah saw. Chapter 24 is a very short chapter. It's a very kind of succinct vision because we're also given the explanation of the vision. So it's not a real complicated chapter at all. And so I wanted to make sure that we went back and cleaned up what I had left dangling weeks ago. So let's start in Jeremiah 22. We're going to start reading at verse 24. And we will review the Jeconiah curse. Here it is. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Caniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. And I shall give you over into the hands of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hands of those whom you dread. Even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans, and I shall hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Is this man Coniah a despised, shattered jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into the land that they had not known? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who will not prosper in his days. For no man of his descendants will prosper and sit on the throne of David or rule again in Judah. So, Jeconiah, as the king of Judah, is cursed by God and told, None of your descendants are going to sit on David's throne and rule from Judah. Interestingly, uh, Jeremiah says, write this man down as childless. He actually had seven sons. But exactly as the prophecy said, not a one of them ever sat on David's throne. And then Jeconiah, as we just read at the beginning of chapter 4, was taken in the Babylonian captivity. That is such a major event that it's recorded a couple of other places in the Old Testament. For instance, in the book of Esther, in describing how it is that Esther ended up there in Susa, we read Esther 2, 5, and 6, there was a Jew at the citadel in Susa whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken from Jerusalem with the exiles, who had been deported with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had deported. So this was a major event that God would cut off the lineage of David. After having made the Davidic covenant, that David would never cease to have a son that would sit on the throne and rule over the collective 12 tribes of Israel, now God has said that he's going to cut that lineage off. And yet we know that Christ, being a son of David, is said to sit on the throne of David ruling. The problem is, when you get to the book of Matthew, and you read the genealogy in Matthew, Joseph comes from the lineage of Jeconiah, and it's right there in the genealogy, which means that Joseph is not and cannot be the heir apparent to the throne of David, therefore his son cannot be either. Well, that seems like a great big problem, so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. This Jeconiah only reigned for three months in Jerusalem before he surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar Now, if you want to, you can turn to the book of Matthew, as I just mentioned, and we're going to read just a little piece of the genealogy, because in Matthew 1, 12 to 16, this is what we read. The very beginning of the New Testament starts with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Starting in verse 12, we read, And after the deportation to Babylon, then to Jeconiah was born Sheltiel, and to Sheltiel Zerubbabel. Well, that's a big problem, because that means that Joseph is going to come from that particular line and lineage. I mean, verse 11 mentions King Josiah, who was a very good king, and he does follow the line of kings correctly. To Josiah was born Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, to Jeconiah was born Sheltiel. And to Sheltiel, Zerubbabel. And to Zerubbabel was born Abiud, And to Abiud Eliakim. And to Eliakim, Azor. And to Azor was born Zadok. And to Zadok, Akim. And to Akim, Eliud, and to Eliud was born Eliezer, and to Eliezer met Han, and to Matt Han Jacob, and to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Therefore, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon until the time of Christ, 14 generations, and... There's that big, glaring problem that Matthew seems to be very aware of because he keeps mentioning the deportation into Babylon and Jeconiah and the problem that exists in the fact that Joseph is a descendant of Jeconiah. So what are we going to do about that? Well, there are a couple of solutions to that problem that have been offered through the years. The one that is most popular among The Jews who are trying to deal with the Davidic covenant and the promise of a kingdom and the promise of a coming Messiah who's going to sit on the throne and that they are going to be reestablished as a kingdom, they know the Jeconiah curse. They know the Jeconiah problem. So their solution to make the Davidic covenant still valid, the solution that the Jewish rabbis prefer is that God reversed the curse on Jeconiah's family. And that's actually hinted at by the prophet Haggai, who told Zerubbabel, who is Jeconiah's grandson, as you saw here in the lineage that Matthew spelled out, his grandson was made governor when Israel, Judah, was allowed to come back to Babylon and rebuild Haggai two twenty to 23 repeats it and says, For the second time that day, the twenty-fourth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai saying, Tell Zerubbabel, who is a grandson of Jeconiah, who is the governor of Judah, that I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of kingdoms and of nations. And I will overturn chariots and their riders and horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and I will make him like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. Now, you'll remember that in Jeremiah 22, God said, though Jeconiah was a signet ring on my right hand, I will take it off. I will throw it away. And yet, here's the language of signet ring being used for Zerubbabel and that he is going to be a signet ring to God. And that signet ring imagery that is taken from Jeconiah's curse and then repeated in Zerubbabel's blessing, that can't just be a coincidence. There has to be something there to it. And so several rabbinical sources teach that Jeconiah repented in Babylon, and then God forgave him, and then he lifted the curse, and that's why Zerubbabel received a blessing. But what you'll notice about Zerubbabel is that he was a governor who was still under the leadership of the Persians and was not a king. He did not sit on David's throne. And In fact, the Jeconiah curse is not solved by that, which means that the Jeconiah curse is still fully functional when Jesus is born to Joseph. And that seems to be a great big problem. The more obvious solution comes from the book of Luke. If it's not the rabbinical solution that solves the Jeconiah curse, It is what Luke tells us in the New Testament, because the truth is, even though Joseph is under Jeconiah's curse, Joseph is not Jesus' dad. And that's important to remember that Jesus only had one human parent, Mary, his mother. And quite fortunately, because God got really lucky, Mary is also from David's line, But as we look at the genealogy that is posted in the book of Luke, you'll notice that she does not get to David through Jeconiah. She is a descendant of a different son of David, and therefore she is the legal heir to the promise from God. So thus Jesus had royal blood through Mary... But the curse of Jeconiah stopped with Joseph and was not passed on to Jesus. And Joseph, though truly from David's lineage, was not the heir apparent to the throne. Luke 3.23, Luke takes the time to point that out. He's very specific with his language. And he says, and when he, Jesus, began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, Being supposedly the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Even Luke wants you to know, supposedly that's his dad. That's the man who raised him, but it's not his father. And that is predicted all the way in the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. When God says, I'll give you a sign, behold, a virgin will conceive. And actually, it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis when God first says that it's the seed of the woman that is going to crush the seed of the serpent. And so you get that early sign, that early indication seed of the woman. What interesting language. Because we know biologically that's not the way it works. Women provide the egg, men provide seed. And yet, it's the seed of the woman who is going to crush the head of Satan. And so throughout the Old Testament, there are these foreshadows telling us that Jesus is not going to have an earthly father. And as we read a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning, the promise from the angel Gabriel to Mary was that the Holy Spirit was going to descend on her and she was going to become pregnant. And she was going to have a child, and his name would be Yeshua, and he'd be Emmanuel, God, with us. And Joseph has no part in any of that. In fact, Joseph is so upset about it, he wants to get rid of her, wants to put her away privately because she turned up pregnant. And an angel of the Lord has to stop Joseph and let him know, no, this is actually God at work. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. So Joseph has... No part in any of that. And the royal blood came to Jesus through Mary. Now, I'm going to describe that in greater detail in a moment. But in order to do that, I'm just going to read you an article. And you know, sometimes when I'm researching things, I find people who just say things so well that I think, I can't do better than that. And if I put it in my own words, I'll make it worse, not better. So this particular article comes from uh, Arnold Frutenbaum, who apparently I've been saying his name wrong for several years. It's Frutenbaum. I watched a lecture of his this week where he was introduced that way. And I thought, well, that must be how he pronounces his name. But he's the fellow who wrote uh, the book on Israelology, the missing link in systematic theology that I liked so much. A tough read. It was his doctoral dissertation, and it's, it's very dry and factual, but it, it was really, really good. He also wrote a very nice uh, comment about my book on Is the Church Israel? So Arnold and I have had a little bit of interaction. These are some excerpts from an article that he wrote on the genealogy of the Messiah. He wrote this back uh, in April of 2018. Here's what he wrote, and I'm just going to read it. Genealogies establish one's lineage, one's Jewishness, one's tribal identity, one's right to the priesthood, and one's right to kingship. Now, by the way, Arnold Frutenbaum is a Jew, a converted Jew. He was a Christ-hating Jew in college. And that Jewish perspective on things like genealogies, things that we don't really track anymore, things that we don't consider so important anymore, he's a really good resource. By the way, you can go read some of his material at ariel.org. It's a-r-i-e-l-r-e-l dot Genealogies are important to the Jews because it shows your Jewishness, your tribal identity, Your right to be a priest, if you were of the Levites, and the right to kingship, you would have to have Davidic lineage. From all the genealogies in the Hebrew scriptures, two observations became apparent. With very few exceptions, only the male line is traced, and only men's names appear. The descendancy of women is not given, and their names are only mentioned in passing. Since biblically it was the father who determined both national and tribal identity, it was reasoned that only his line was necessary to be recorded. In addition, only one line is traced from the beginning to the end of biblical history, the line of King David. The Old Testament scriptures reveal every name before David. It traces Adam to David And every name after David, David to Zerubbabel. And since the Messiah was going to be from the house of David, this can also be labeled as the messianic line. And that's the purpose for all these Old Testament genealogies. Uh, If you've ever tried to read the genealogies in the Bible, it's tough to stay awake. I did a series of lectures for Texas a couple of years ago, and they're up on YouTube now. It's a seedology is what I called it, where I trace those exact lineages and genealogies that he's talking about, starting from Adam and tracing them through to David and tracing the Abrahamic covenant and how it breaks out and then tracing it all the way to Jesus. You'll notice when we get to the New Testament, after we see the two genealogies tracing to Jesus there's no more genealogies because they accomplished what they had to accomplish. They showed that Jesus was indeed the seed of Abraham, the seed of Adam, the seed of David. He was the Messiah. Even Paul talks about those Jews who were still committed to what he called endless genealogies because they had accomplished what they were out to accomplish. And so the genealogies are all leading you to Jesus. In fact, says Arnold, the genealogies limit more and more the human origin of the Messiah. As the seed of the woman, Messiah had to come out of humanity. As the seed of Abraham, Messiah had to come out of the nation of Israel. As the seed of Judah, he had to be of the tribe of Judah. As the seed of David, he had to be of the family of David. And the pattern of genealogy in the Hebrew scriptures is followed by the New Testament pattern, where two genealogies are found in Matthew 1 and in Luke 3. Of the four gospel accounts, only those two deal with the birth of Jesus and the early life of Jesus. Both Mark and John begin their accounts with Jesus as an adult. So it is only natural that only Matthew and Luke would have a genealogy since they start when he's young. And while they both provide an account of his birth and early life, each tells the story from a different perspective. In Matthew, Joseph plays an active role, but Mary plays a passive role. Matthew records angels appearing to Joseph, but there's no record of angels appearing to Mary. Matthew records Joseph's thoughts, but nothing is recorded about Miriam's thoughts. On the other hand, Luke's gospel tells the same story from Mary. He keeps referring to her by her Hebrew name Miriam. Luke's gospel tells the same story from Miriam's perspective. And from the context of each gospel, it would be very evident that the genealogy of Matthew is that of Joseph, and the genealogy of Luke is that of Miriam. In his genealogy, Matthew breaks with Jewish tradition and custom. He mentions the name of four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. She's the one who is referred to as her in verse 6. It was contrary to Jewish practice to name women in a genealogy. The Talmud states, the mother's family is not to be called a family. And even the few women that Luke does mention were not the most prominent women in the genealogy of Yeshua. He could have mentioned Sarah, for instance, but he didn't. However, Matthew has a reason for naming these four women and no others. First, they were all Gentiles. There are four Gentile women in the lineage leading to Jesus. This is obvious in the case of Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. It was probably true of Bathsheba, since her first husband, Uriah, was a Hittite. And here Matthew hints at something that he makes clear later, that while the main purpose of the coming of Jesus was to save the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the Gentiles would also benefit from his coming. Second, three of these women were guilty of sexual sin. Bathsheba was guilty of adultery, Rahab was guilty of prostitution, and Tamar was guilty of incest. Again, Matthew only hints at a point that he later clarifies that the purpose of Messiah's coming is to save sinners. And while this fits into the format of Old Testament genealogy, that's not Matthew's main point. This is where I think it gets really interesting, so pay attention. I hope it's been interesting so far. I've always wondered, me, I've always wondered about this genealogy at the book of Matthew because the assumption is that it is establishing that Jesus has the right to sit on the throne of David because both his mother and his father are from the lineage of David. But Arnold says that that's not the reason for the genealogy in the book of Matthew. Listen to this. This is fascinating. I read it and went, duh, how did I miss that all these years? Matthew's genealogy breaks with tradition in that he skips names. He traces the line of Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, by going back into history and then working toward his own time. He starts tracing the line with Abraham in verse 2, continues to David in verse 6. Out of David's many sons, Solomon is chosen in verse 6. And the line is then traced to King Jeconiah in verse 11. One of the last kings before the Babylonian captivity. From Jeconiah in verse 12, the line is traced to Joseph in verse 16. Joseph is a direct descendant of David through Solomon, but also through Jeconiah. And the Jeconiah link is significant in Matthew's genealogy because of the special curse that was pronounced on Jeconiah in Jeremiah 22, which we just read. No descendants of Jeconiah would have the right to sit on the throne of David. Until Jeremiah, this first requirement for messianic lineage was that they had to be from the house of David. But with Jeremiah, it is limited still further... Now one had to not only be from the house of David, but from the house of David apart from Jeconiah. According to Matthew's genealogy, Joseph had the blood of Jeconiah in his veins. He was not qualified to sit on David's throne. He was not the heir apparent. This would also mean that no real son of Joseph would have the right to claim the throne of David. Therefore, if Jesus were the real son of Joseph he would have been disqualified from sitting on David's throne. Neither could he claim the right to David's throne by virtue of his adoption by Joseph, since Joseph was not the heir apparent. The purpose of Matthew's genealogy, then, is to show why Yeshua could not be king if he was really Joseph's son. The purpose of Matthew's genealogy, then, is to show why Yeshua could not be king if he were really Joseph's son. The purpose was not to show the royal line. And for this reason, Matthew starts his gospel with the genealogy, presents the Jeconiah problem, then proceeds with the account of the virgin birth, which from Matthew's viewpoint is the solution to the Jeconiah problem. In summary, Matthew deduces that if Jesus were really Joseph's son, he could not claim to sit on David's throne because of the Jeconiah curse, but Jesus was not Joseph's son; he was born of the virgin Mary. And you read about that in Matthew 1:18 to 25. Meanwhile, Luke's genealogy, unlike Matthew, Luke follows strict Jewish procedure and custom in that he omits no names and mentions no women. However, if by the Jewish custom one could not mention the name of a woman but wished to trace her line, how would he do so? Well, he would use the name of her husband. Possible Old Testament precedents for this practice can be found in the book of Ezra and the genealogies there, and in Nehemiah seven sixty three. So that would raise a second question. If someone studied a genealogy, how would he know whether the genealogy was that of the husband or that of the wife? Since in either case, the husband's name would be used, and the answer is not difficult. The problem lies with the English language like so many problems do. In English, it is not good grammar to use a definite article, the, before a proper name. We wouldn't say, the Tom walked through the door, and he spoke to the Micah. However, it is quite permissible to do that in Greek grammar. In the Greek text of Luke's genealogy, every single name mentioned has the Greek definite article, the, with only one exception, the name of Joseph. Someone reading the original Greek version of Luke would understand by the missing definite article from Joseph's name that this was not really Joseph's genealogy, it was his wife's, Mary's. Furthermore, Although many translations of Luke 3.23 read being supposedly the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, because of the missing Greek definite article before the name Joseph, that same verse could be translated being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli, or Heli. In other words, the final parenthesis could be expanded so that the verse reads that although Yeshua was supposed or assumed to be a descendant of Joseph, he was really the descendant of Heli. And Heli was the father of Mary. The absence of Mary's name is quite in keeping with Jewish practices of genealogies, and the Jerusalem Talmud recognized this genealogy from Luke As being the genealogy of Mary and not of Joseph, it refers to Mary as the daughter of Heli. Also in contrast to Matthew, Luke begins his genealogy with his own time and then goes back into history all the way back to Adam. It comes to the family of David in verses 31 to 32. However, the son of David involved in this genealogy is not Solomon, but Nathan. You can go read it. So, like Joseph, Miriam is a member of the house of David, but unlike Joseph, she came from David's son Nathan, not from Solomon. And Miriam was a member of the house of David apart from Jeconiah. And since Jesus was Mary's son and not Joseph's, He, too, was a member of the house of David apart from Jeconiah. So whereas Jewish nationality and tribal identification were normally determined by the father, when it comes to the Messiah, everything is different. Since he was to have no human father, his nationality and tribal identity would come entirely from his mother. And true... This is contrary to the norm, but so is the virgin birth. With the Messiah, everything would be different. In addition, these genealogies present a fourfold portrait of the messianic person through four titles. In Matthew 1.1, he's called the son of David and the son of Abraham. In Luke 3.38, he is called the son of Adam and the son of God. As the son of David, it means that Jesus is king. As the son of Abraham, it means that Jesus is Jewish. As the son of Adam, it proves that Jesus had to be a human man. And as the son of God, it means Jesus is also God. He is the God-man. This fourfold portrait of the messianic person is presented in the genealogies of the Jewish God-man-king. Okay, so that is a Jewish perspective to the Jeconiah problem that if you're not familiar with genealogical rules, and if you were to just read the Matthew genealogy and the Luke genealogy, you'd see the differences, but it's hard to put those differences together and understand the importance of them. Way back when, in the time of Jeremiah, God cursed Jeconiah and his lineage effectively stopping the throne of David and the line of David's descendants that would ever sit on the throne in Jerusalem and rule over Israel. And yet he had made a promise to David that his descendant was going to sit on the throne and rule in a forever kingdom over the 12 tribes of Israel. So God stopped the lineage of David and continued the lineage of David. And Matthew was proving by the lineage that he wrote that had Jesus not been virgin born, he could not be that messianic king. Luke was proving that through Mary, he was indeed the messianic king that was promised all the way back. at day. This, is, this is a plan of God that's just, you have to duct tape your head together. It's just so large and expansive. God's control over human history, his absolute sovereignty over people to create, to set the stage in such a way that he could both curse and bless the exact same lineage of people so that he could accomplish every promise and every curse he ever made. That's a big God. Yes. So, you can see why a couple weeks ago I said, Hang on to that. We'll get back to it. I hope you found that as interesting as I did. Jeremiah 24. That was all introduction. a
0: good introduction. You might you may have been your best
1: one yet. That may have been my best introduction yet? Yeah. All right. Because I've been introducing for so Great. long. So long time. Yeah, I feel good. It won't take us long to go through Jeremiah 24. But now we know what we're talking about. This is right around 597 BC. We know that because Jeremiah tells us specifically what's going on at this moment. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the one with the curse, who was the son of Jehoiakim, who was the king of Judah, and he carried away the officials of Judah with the craftsmen and the smiths from Jerusalem. And brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me a vision. It was in that early first deportation that Nebuchadnezzar and his forces took all of the high and mighty of Jerusalem and all the skilled people of Jerusalem, all the wealthy or the influential people. This, by the way, is also the group of people that includes Daniel. When you read the book of Daniel, this is what Jeremiah is talking about. Jeremiah is a contemporary of Daniel. And actually, Daniel is going to fill in a couple of blanks that come with this particular passage here. Okay, so he's showing him a vision. Behold, two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. One basket was very good figs, like first ripe figs. And the other had very bad figs, which could not be eaten due to rottenness. So two baskets of figs. One, that language of like first ripe figs, is very much like a first fruit offering that's brought here to the temple of the Lord. So there seems to be a parallel here to first fruit offerings brought to God. And yet there was a similar kind of offering that was inedible because of the rottenness. It had just all rotted away. So one basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs. The other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten due to rottenness. And then the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs. The good figs are very good, and the bad, very bad, which cannot be eaten because they're rotten. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Like these good figs, I will regard as good the captives of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. There were two primary deportations of people out of Jerusalem taken to Babylon, The first, like I said, was the high and mighty, the artisans, the craftsmen, those who were actually going to be productive in the society of Babylon, those who could actually contribute to it. And the next were those, there was no middle class per se, but those who could be useful workers. But then there was a remnant that was left at Jerusalem, even after Jerusalem had been destroyed. The walls were knocked down. The temple was burned. But there were still remnants of people there, some of whom went down into Egypt, some who had come back from Egypt. And these were people who stayed in the land despite the fact that God had established that he was going to completely clear the land out of all the Israelites. And so God says, those that he takes to Babylon, he's going to reckon as good, as good figs. Now that's really interesting because if you've been listening to the book of Jeremiah with us, you know that God has said everybody in Jerusalem's bad. And he's been taking Jeremiah around and showing them what they're doing in the temple and how they're worshiping their idols in the temple and just the horrific things that they are doing in the temple and in their homes in private. Jeremiah has been witness to all that and God has proven to him that the Judahites are just no good. So it's not that God is saying, I took the good ones and I'm taking them to Babylon. It's that God says... I'm taking these, and I'm going to reckon them as good, which is very important to folks like us because it's not that God makes us good so that we then have this infused goodness where we're able to live out our lives righteous and holy. It's that God reckons us as righteous and holy. The only way that anybody could be considered good in front of a holy, righteous God is for God to reckon them as being that. And that's the way that he reckons the Israelites who he has taken into Babylon. By the way, when the Jews get to Babylon as a group, as a people group, they thrive there for 70 years. So much so that after the Medes and Persians take over Babylon and allow them to go back, some of them say, well, I don't really want to go back. I'm doing fine here. I got a family here. I'm settled here. I don't want to go back. And so God establishes the good figs who he says I will regard as good. And they are the captives of Judah whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good. And I will bring them again to this land. And I will build them up and not overthrow them. Now I'm going to really tax your memory. At the very beginning of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was given a commission that included, you're going to root up and tear down and build up and establish. So here is God saying, I'm going to take them into Babylon. But while they're in Babylon, I'm going to protect them I'm going to be good to them because God has to continue that lineage of people because that's the lineage of people through whom the Messiah is going to come. He has to keep Judah going no matter what because that's the lineage through whom Jesus is coming. And the same way that he took the 12 sons of Israel into Egypt and then blessed them through Joseph, and then gave them Goshen, the land, and then let them grow into a great population of people, a mighty nation, and then took them into their land again? He's doing the same thing here. I'm taking you into Babylon. While you're in Babylon, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to be good to you. You're going to prosper and thrive there so that I can then bring you back to Jerusalem. The next chapter is going to tell us how long that's going to take. We're going to find out that it's 70 years. From Daniel, we find out that the reason for the 70 years is because the Jews were not allowing the land of Israel to keep its Sabbaths. The Sabbath rule included every seventh day you rest. And then every seven seven Sabbaths, there was a Sabbath year and then a Jubilee year. And the Jews weren't trusting God enough to provide them with food. And they kept farming the land anyway. So Daniel tells us that the reason that God took the Israelites out of the land was to let the land enjoy its Sabbath and rest for a while. Which is kind of a clue for why God would say the people who stayed there and keep living there and planting there, they're messing with my land. They're rotten. Here's what he says. Verse 7. And I will give them, oh, this is still talking about those that he's going to treat good. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. By the way, that has not happened yet. So every commentary you read on that verse says that this is prophecy of the future in gathering of Israel When Jesus the Messiah is going to sit on his throne, the most obvious time for that to happen is the millennium, the reign of Christ on the planet, when God promised in many different places in the Old Testament that he is going to give them a new heart, going to take out their stony heart, give them a heart of flesh, they're going to look on him whom they have pierced, and they are going to be his people, and he is going to be their God. So this is a two-stage prophecy. The first stage is I'm going to keep them in Babylon, I'm going to treat them well in Babylon, then I'm going to bring them back to Jerusalem to reestablish my worship there because the Messiah has to be born there. There has to be a temple there for the Messiah to go into, so the temple's going to be rebuilt. All of that's going to happen, but then the long-range second phase of the prophecy is that ultimately these are going to be the people of God who Messiah is going to rule over. He is going to put his spirit in them. There is going to be national conversion. They are going to be his people. He is going to be their God because they're going to return to me with their whole heart. And of course, that didn't happen initially when he brought them back from Babylon because in 70 AD he knocks down the temple again and drives them all out again. But the promise is still good. This still has to happen. Meanwhile, in verse 8, But like the bad figs, which cannot be eaten due to their rottenness, indeed, thus says the Lord, I will abandon Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials. By the way, Zedekiah was the very last named king in that lineage of David after Jeconiah, and he was placed there as king by Babylon. And so he was not an independent Davidic king. So God is angry at him. I will abandon Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in the land, and the ones who dwell in the land of Egypt. And I will make them a terror and an evil For all the kingdoms of the earth, and a reproach, and a proverb, and a taunt, and a curse in all places where I'm going to scatter them. And I will send the sword, and famine, and pestilence upon them until they are destroyed from the land. This is all about God making sure that the land gets to keep its Sabbaths. From the land which I gave them and to which I gave their forefathers. Okay, now that's kind of an introduction to what's coming up. Because in chapter 25, which we'll get to next week, God willing, then we're going to hear about the 70 years, how long the captivity is going to be. And then God is going to say, and Babylon, who takes them captive after Babylon has accomplished what I'm going to use them to accomplish, which is to come and get my people and take them out of the land, I'm then going to judge Babylon for everything that they did to my people because they're still God's people. God does not abandon his people. When we talk about sovereign election and we talk about things like God's predestinary will, when we say that God saves people utterly and completely because he chose them before the foundation of the world, God does not lose those people. He will correct them. He will redirect your steps. but He's not going to lose you. Same thing with Israel. He never lost Israel. He never gave up on Israel. He hasn't given up on them to this very day, because the same way that he had to keep them intact... In order for Jesus to come as the lion of the tribe of Judah, he still has to regather them in order for there to be the Davidic kingdom so that the Messiah can complete his role as king, sitting on David's throne, ruling from Jerusalem. That also has to happen. Therefore, there has to be an Israel, there has to be a temple, and there has to be a messianic kingship. That all still has to happen. So God corrects his people... And by the way, big hint, uh, he corrects them pretty severely. And if you've ever been under the hand of God's judgment and correction, you know that he can be pretty severe in his corrections. But he's doing that so that he doesn't lose you. He's doing that because he's a faithful God. I think I'm done. But then again, I didn't get to talk the last three weeks. So, So good. Any questions about that? I know I just threw everything at you all at once, but if you come away with nothing else tonight, here I'll summarize. Uh, God's in charge, Uh, point two, God's in charge, and point three, God's in charge. That's what you should come away with from tonight.